0: If you have a Bible handy, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, and we're actually going to read verses 1 through 17 a bit longer than it says in our worship guide, but we're going to focus on those first nine verses. Uh, You'll recall what we're doing in the lead up to Easter is following the lectionary readings from the gospel of Luke, sort of dipping into Jesus's life to get a bird's eye view as we approach Holy Week and Easter. Listen now as I read Luke thirteen one through seventeen. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look. For three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for eighteen years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan had bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. This is God's word. In this passage, Jesus is confronted with two tragedies. One is a violent atrocity, the other, apparently, a freak accident. Apart from this passage in Luke, we don't have any other historical information about these events. But apparently, some Galilean pilgrims were in Jerusalem to offer sacrifices in the temple. And since they're involved in offering the sacrifices, it's likely that this was Passover. Apparently, while they're worshiping, totally defenseless in the temple, Pilate sends in soldiers to kill them at the altar. And their blood is shed and thus mingled with their sacrifices. Or perhaps even more appallingly, Pilate intentionally has them mix the blood of these murdered worshipers with their sacrifice. Either way, it's a horrible atrocity. And Jesus adds to it another He says, uh, in Jerusalem, apparently near the Pool of Siloam, which is mentioned a number of times in the Gospels, uh, there was a tower, perhaps part of the wall fortification, and it collapsed, maybe during a construction accident, and killed 18 people. And the crowd comes to Jesus and they're saying, why does this happen? What's going on here? We want your take on this. Why do bad things happen? We ask the same questions, don't we? This is a very pertinent, modern question. Why does God let bad things happen? Why do tragedies seem to be so unequally dispersed around the world? Something bad happens to one person and not to another. Uh, One of the summers when I was in college, I worked at a shipyard. And after I went back to school, uh, while they were lifting a small helicopter onto a ship, a faulty eye bolt snapped and dropped the helicopter onto the deck of the ship and killed the man who took over the job that I had been doing that summer. Why was he killed and I went back to college and my life goes on? Why does this person recover from cancer and not that person? Why this accident, this overdose, this absurd act of violence, this car wreck? It's a question we all wrestle with. In our passage this morning, Jesus teaches there's two wrong ways to think about bad things that happen. And then he says a right way. But before we get into Jesus' response to these tragedies, we need to pay attention to who Jesus is talking to here. In verses 1 through 9, Jesus is not talking to the families of those who are killed by Pilate. He's not talking to the friends of those who were crushed by this tower. That is to say, he's not talking to people who are in the midst of suffering and wrestling with tragedy, trying to understand why this is happening to them. This is not Jesus' response to those in the midst of pain and suffering. He is not without compassion or sympathy. Uh, here Jesus is talking to the crowd. These are the big news stories of the day. So it's a bit like asking Jesus' opinion on the war in Ukraine. How come these, this is happening? Or, or maybe in the pandemic, how come this church has an outbreak and that church doesn't? You know, these kinds of questions. That's, that's the sort of, we want your opinion on the big talking points. But for some of you today, suffering is not an abstract question to be debated. It's life. It's where you're at. You don't want to talk about suffering in a detached manner. You want to know, does God even care? And that's why we read uh, verses 10 through 17, which actually is the rest of the lectionary reading for this morning. It's really too much ground to cover in one sermon, but it's important to see. In Luke's narrative, he puts together Jesus' response in the abstract about suffering with his response to a particular woman who had a particular suffering that she was dealing with, this woman who was unable to straighten herself for 18 years. Again, we don't have time to go into this healing story, but remember, the Sabbath day is rooted in creation. It's the seventh day of creation when God rests, and he says "It's all of the created world is very good before sin, before all of this enters the world. It's very good, before human rebellion. And each Sabbath day then is meant to be a reminder of the very good created order that God made. But it also points ahead to God's hope that we would all enjoy that final Sabbath rest with God. And so one Sabbath day, Jesus sees in the synagogue a woman in obvious pain, unable to straighten herself, And he has compassion. And you see, Jesus takes the initiative. He calls her over to himself. And he says, woman, be free. You are freed of your disability. Be free to fully participate in and enjoy this day of Sabbath rest. And then he goes on to debate the propriety of healing on the Sabbath. And we don't have time to go into all that. But what I want you to see this morning, if you are in the midst of pain and suffering, here is Jesus and how he responds to that. His desire is to restore, to make whole, to bring freedom, to heal. But verses 1 through 9 is where I want to focus this morning, and it's a fairly uncommon passage in Jesus' teaching. There's not many places where Jesus addresses himself to those who are not suffering and yet are asking about suffering, this sort of abstract question of why is there suffering in the world. The other similar passage I can think of is in John 9, when the disciples ask about a blind man that they see, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Blind. Because this is a fairly unique place in Jesus' teaching, it's important for us, especially in our modern connected world, where right now, if you want, you could pull out your phone and probably find a thousand news stories about these sorts of disasters that have happened around the world today. We don't have any personal stake in those tragedies, and yet we look at them and we think, or or, or we wonder, how should I think about this? It seems unfair. Why do these bad things happen? Well, in verses 1 through 9, Jesus says there's a wrong way and a right way to think about bad things, and so I want us to see two truths in Jesus' teaching this morning, two truths. First, bad things don't mean worse people, and second, repent while there's a chance First, Jesus confronts this wrong way of thinking about bad things. He says, Bad things don't mean worse people. Bad things don't mean worse people. And to give credit where it's due, I have to confess that here I was greatly helped trying to figure out how to preach this passage. I had listened to a sermon by Tim Keller last fall on this passage, and so I thought, Okay, I can see what Jesus is doing here, and otherwise it would be quite a daunting passage to wrestle with. But he helped me to see what Jesus is doing at this first part, rejecting this wrong way of thinking. That bad, bad things don't mean worse people. When bad things happen, there's really two ways our thinking can go wrong. One we might call a moralistic or religious response. When bad things happen, we think there must be a reason. There must be a reason bad things happen to that person. Maybe we have some sort of vague idea of karma. People get what's coming to them. This is the prominent view in our day, whether people are explicitly religious or not. In the sound of music, take it or leave it. I leave it, but you can take it if you want. Nevertheless, in the sound of music, Maria has some absolutely terrible theology when she sings, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. For here you are standing, loving me. I must have done something good. She can't remember doing something good, but there must have been something that she did that was good. And that's why now she met Mr. Wright and things are going well. If something good happens to us, it must be because we deserve it. And conversely, if something bad happens, we must have done something bad to deserve that. And our built-in instinct, when we hear about some tragedy or we read about it in the newspaper or, or on the internet, wherever we read about these kinds of things, we want to find some reason why it happened. So we can reassure ourselves that it won't happen to us. We look for some detail So we hear about some act of violence and we start reading. and We say, oh, they were in that neighborhood that I wouldn't go in. At that time of night when I wouldn't be out interacting with those people that I wouldn't be around. That's why they got shot or whatever the violence is. That wouldn't happen to me. They did something to deserve it. And then on the other hand, when something bad happens to us, when we get a bad diagnosis, an investment doesn't work out, a field fails, a child rejects us, we think, I must have done something to deserve this. God is punishing me. I'm under a curse. It's clear from Jesus' response to the crowd, this is how, the, this is how they're thinking about these tragedies. He asked, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Clearly they do. do you, or those 18 that the tower fell on and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Clearly they do. Well, Yeah. Of course, they wouldn't say it out loud. It's not, it's not polite, but it's basically what they're thinking. They must have done something to deserve that. In chapter 12, uh, just before this passage, Jesus has been warning the crowd about coming judgment that they need to be prepared for. Apparently, the crowd then brings up these Galileans as a possible illustration. You know, uh, I, I'm quite thankful when people suggest illustrations to me because I'm not that great at it. But, um, but that seems to be the thought here is Jesus is teaching about judgment. They're saying, well, what about this illustration? What about those Galileans that Pilate killed? There's an example of God's judgment. But he turns things totally on its head. Of course, there's a second wrong way of thinking about bad things that happen. If this first wrong way we might call the, the religious or moralistic response, the second wrong response we could call the anti-religious response. When bad things happen, we don't say God is punishing us for something we deserve, but God simply doesn't care. When the tower falls, the religious response blames the people under the tower. They must have done something wrong. But the anti-religious response blames the person above the tower. If God cared, why did he let this tower fall on these people? If God loves me, he wouldn't let this happen to me. He must not love me. He must not care. Now there's more than one way to be wrong. You can be wrong about facts, and it doesn't really matter, or at least some facts. We had a family debate yesterday at lunch about if algae is a plant or not. Uh, If anyone cares, I was slightly more right, but none of us were totally right, but it's neither here nor there. Okay, if you're a biologist, it might matter whether you know if algae is a plant or not. It's mostly not, for the record, but uh, it it doesn't matter. Uh, The point is it doesn't matter, not that it matters, so I should quit rehashing the debate, but... But for the rest of us, it's not really a big deal what you think about algae one way or the other, okay? But what Jesus is addressing here is not just being wrong in a way like that that doesn't really matter. It's a fundamentally wrong way of thinking that has far-reaching effects, okay? If we think bad things mean worse people, then when things are going good for us, we'll be arrogant. We look down our nose at others. We're conceited. think, okay, that happened to them because they did something wrong. Their child is behaving that way because they're worse parents than me. We don't say that out loud, but it's running in the background. Outwardly, we might be very sympathetic, but in the back of our minds, we think that other person is somehow a worse sinner than me. Like Maria, we say we may not even know what we did that was good, but we must have done something good. This wrong way of thinking makes us subtly but insufferably arrogant. But then when something bad happens to us, a tower falls on us, and it's bound to happen sooner or later, we are totally crushed. Either we think we're under a curse, I have cancer because I cheated on my eighth grade history final, or we think God just doesn't care about me, he doesn't actually love me, and the tower crushes us. So this wrong way of thinking, it makes us arrogant when things go well and too fragile to endure when things go bad. What's Jesus' response then? He totally rejects this wrong way of thinking. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. No, I tell you, but repent. It seems like a contradiction. He's saying, no, it's not because they're worse than you, but repent. Okay? But actually, it's a very balanced response. He says, no, I tell you, bad things don't mean worse people. These Galileans weren't worse sinners than the other Galileans. Those crushed by the tower weren't worse offenders than anyone else in Jerusalem. Bad things don't mean worse people. And the proof of this is Jesus himself. He lived a perfect good life. And yet he's rejected by his own people, abandoned by his friends, murdered by Pilate. Living a good life in this fallen world does not guarantee that bad things won't happen to you. But, Jesus says, these bad things should also be a warning. They should be a warning to us all. And here then is the second truth I want you to see in Jesus' teaching this morning. Repent while there's still a chance. Repent while there's a chance. Remember, Jesus is not addressing those in the midst of suffering saying, repent. He's addressing the crowd, those for whom things overall are going pretty well. That might be you today. Things are going pretty well. Work's going pretty well. Family's going pretty well. It's been sunny the last couple days. I mean, things seem to be going pretty well. Those are the people, if that's you today, that Jesus says repent to. That's totally opposite our usual way of thinking. When a kid's learning to ride a bike, you know, you put your hands on either side of them and you help them go along when the training wheels are off and you're helping them balance And they get to a point where they say, let go, I don't need you anymore. I'm doing this on my own. You let go and what do they do? Bike goes over, right? Well, eventually with a child, the goal is for them to go without you having to chase them around the yard all day long, holding them up. But with God, there's never a point where he can just let go and we do it on our own. We're always dependent on him. But when things are going well, we're a bit like that child who thinks that they've got the handle of it while their parents are holding on. And we say, "Eh, God, you can let go. We got this for a while. I'm not worried about it. And then when we crash, that's when we think we need to repent. When, when we're crashing and burning, we say, oh, something's wrong. I need to repent here. But Jesus says when things are going well, when the tower's not falling on you, that's actually when you're most in need of repenting. When our marriage is going through a difficult season, when our parenting's blowing up, when work's falling apart, when we get caught cheating on our eighth grade history exam. That's when we think, I need to repent and get right with God. And that's true. I'm not denying that. But here Jesus is saying, actually, when your marriage is going well, when your kids are well-behaved, when work is going good, when classes are going well, when everything is working out, you may actually be in the greatest danger. That's when you need to repent. It's like you take your friend to the ER because they broke their arm falling out of a tree or something. And you get to the ER and the doctor looks at you and they say, actually, we need to get you in a bed right away. And you say, No, I'm the healthy one. It's my friend here. He says, no, you are more sick than your friend is. You just don't realize it. Again, this seems to be paradoxical because we so naturally think wrong about falling towers and we don't rightly understand repentance. Repenting is not simply saying, I'm sorry for cheating on the eighth grade history final. Please forgive me and stop cursing me. That's not repentance. It might be part of it, confessing specific things you did wrong, but biblical repentance The Greek term is metanoia. Biblical repentance, it's a fundamental change in thinking that leads to a fundamental change in behavior or way of living. John Calvin describes biblical repentance like this. The meaning is that departing from ourselves, we turn to God. And having taken off our former mind, we put on a new mind. Repentance is the true turning of our life to God. When Jesus says, do you think they were worse sinners because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. He's rejecting this way of thinking that says bad things mean worse people. But he's not saying these Galileans or those crushed by the tower are innocent. He simply says they're no worse than anyone else. Then with this call to repentance, here's what he's getting at. He's saying, you think the problem is this or that individual sin, this or that individual bad thing you did, which leads to bad things happening to you. He says, no, the problem is much more fundamental than that. The reason there is suffering in the world is not as a punishment for this or that individual thing you did wrong, but rather the problem goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, goes back to Adam and Eve, the first representative couple who were called to enjoy the Sabbath rest, living in fellowship with God, but instead went their own way. They turned their own way. And now every human being living downstream of that is marked by the same rebellious inclination. Our instinct is to focus on ourselves, to go our own way. Augustine says, Our hearts were made to point towards God, but they got bent out of shape, so it points back at ourselves. As a result, whether things are going well or badly at the moment, we are all in need of biblical repentance, of turning from the way we're going And heading the other direction. A total reorientation of our lives. Excuse me. We don't see it in English, but Jesus calls the crowd to repent two times here. And one time he uses, or he uses different tenses these two times. One time it seems that he's saying, okay, there needs to be this fundamental definitive repentance. What we call a conversion. You need to change course. But there's also an ongoing aspect that we daily need to repent and reorient ourselves toward God. To drive this point home, Jesus tells this brief parable about the fig tree. Okay, a man owns a vineyard and in it is a fig tree. He keeps coming to look for figs and there's none there. So he tells the gardener, chop it down, get rid of it. It's wasting ground. And this gardener, perhaps knowing how much work it is to dig up all the roots, says, how about I put some manure around it, try and amend the soil, and maybe we can get some fruit out of it next year and I won't have to dig anything up. Um, and the guy says, okay, we'll, we'll give it a chance. And Jesus turns to his parable because he's saying, actually, this is a better picture of what things are like. You think things are going well with you and that means that you're okay with God and everything's fine and you don't need to worry about it. Actually, you're in this year, this year before the tree gets chopped down, this year when God's looking for fruit. What is that fruit that God's looking for? It's repentance. That's the sweet fruit, a reorientation of life towards God. If we can put it this way, we all deserve the falling tower. It's not that those 18 were any worse, but rather God is patient. And so we're all living in a period of grace and mercy. But Jesus says, don't presume. Don't assume this will go on forever. He says, unless you repent, you all likewise perish. That is to say, a tower could fall on any of us at any moment. You could get in a wreck on the way home. You could be terminally diagnosed this week. Jesus is saying, are you prepared? If you repent and reorient your life towards God, when things go well, instead of being judgmental towards others, you will have compassion towards them, towards those who are in the midst of suffering. When things go badly, you won't be hopeless, but you'll be able to survive. The question then is, what does this fundamental change, this fundamental repentance that Jesus urges upon us, how does that happen? Is it just by willpower that we choose to change our mind? Friends, true repentance is only possible when we see that the tower first fell on Jesus so that we don't perish. When Jesus heals this woman in the the next story that we read briefly, we see his compassion, his desire to bring his own into true ultimate Sabbath rest, to heal, to bring wholeness. But even if Jesus spent all day, every day healing individuals, it would not solve the fundamental problem in the world. The fundamental problem that leads to suffering, human sin and rebellion. And so God himself chooses to enter the world. God comes into the world and lets the tower fall on him so that we're not crushed by it. Literally, Jesus, too, is a Galilean on pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Just like these Galileans that Pilate killed. And he knows what will happen when he gets to Jerusalem. He's already told his disciples. They don't understand yet, but he's warned them. He says that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Like these other Galileans, Pilate will put him to death. And his blood will pour out as a sacrifice. The tower falls on Jesus. It crushes him. The punishment for sin, God's wrath against human rebellion, it all falls on Jesus so that we can stand. And when we look to Jesus, we see him murdered so that we can live, him crushed so that we can stand. That's when true repentance begins when we reorient our life towards this God who entered the world and let the tower fall on him so we can have life, when we see the true love of God for us, and then when we recognize we live only because God's hands are on us, like the child on a bicycle. We don't look down on others when things are going well. We don't fall apart when bad things come upon us. We can truly live. We can endure hardship, and we can be bearable when things are going well for us. It's looking to Jesus, crushed for our sake, that fundamentally changes our thinking and our behavior. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, the problems of suffering surround us. And we can see that so many of them Wars, uh, all sorts of shortages, etc., are all caused by human sinfulness and rebellion. Lord, we see the need for the world to be put right, and you are so gracious and loving that you came into the world yourself. You were crushed so that we might live. To put things right, you were murdered by Pilate. There are some here today, Lord, who have never repented who have never begun that fundamental process of reorienting their life towards you. True repentance, Lord, only comes by the work of your Holy Spirit. And so I ask, even this morning, that your Holy Spirit would be at work, doing the work of repentance in their hearts. As we sing this next hymn, may they, for the first time perhaps, fundamentally feel their hearts reorienting in love for Christ. Others of us, Lord, have converted, we have repented, we've oriented ourselves towards you, and yet we have this daily task that Christ has called us to, pushing aside other things, focusing our lives upon you, letting our hearts point straight as they ought to. Again, this work only takes place by your Holy Spirit. So we ask again, as we look to Jesus, that you would be at work in our hearts Lord, keep us from these wrong ways of thinking that make us arrogant and insufferable. Keep us from these wrong ways of thinking that make us fall apart when things go badly. Let us find our life in Christ. Let us stand under the one who let the tower fall on him to save us. Amen.